welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Let me pray before we jump into this. Lord, I thank you for Oak Hills, uh, our little part of helping to extend your kingdom to a world so desperately in need of it. And uh, we continue to pray as we think about what it looks like to have a radiant life individually and as a community. Stir things up in us even today. Could it be that even today as we listen to your word, as we ponder these things, that something within us that has been lodged in our thoughts for a long time might begin to break loose and give way to your new life and to your radiant life. We pray that would happen and we do so in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, Julie and I watched a show on Netflix that had been suggested by our own Jordan Wells, and it's called The Repair Shop. And The Repair Shop is essentially a barn in the middle of an iconic and idyllic English countryside. People come from all over with their treasured and weathered heirlooms to have them restored in this wonderful shop. And each of these heirlooms has a story. And the artists who work in this repair shop are gentle souls. And they have this rare quality of being able to see what an heirloom once was and could be again. And they patiently and carefully work to restore these heirlooms. They're restoring things that many of us, maybe I'm alone in this, I know what I would do, I would look at it and I would say something along the lines of that's old and beaten up and it would find a place on a shelf that would never get looked at again or in the attic or more likely in the nearest dumpster. But these folks patiently and tenderly work to restore these heirlooms. A woman brought in a butter churn that she had vivid memories of watching her grandmother use to make the family's butter. And this churn was 100 or so years old. It was weathered by time. It was weathered by use. It still looked like a churn, but it didn't function like one. It needed all kinds of obvious and some not so obvious repairs and restorations. And so the restoration artist patiently went to work piece by piece. One guy brought in a big square suitcase trunk his great-great-grandfather had traveled all over the world with back in the late 1800s. It was nicked, it was dented, pieces of it were broken. There's a strap that goes around it that wasn't working, and the restoration artist who worked on it soon encountered this stubborn little rubber knob at the bottom of the suitcase. It was sort of like one of about eight rubber shoes at the bottom of the suitcase, so when you set the thing down, it doesn't fall over. And this little rubber knob was bent and broken, so the artist could not get this off to replace it. And she was working on it, and she was commentating, because we were all watching, while she was working on it. She said something like this, now you have to put just enough pressure on this, but you can't force it and put too much pressure. And since this isn't working, what I'm doing right here, hmm, it's a little more stubborn than I thought it would be. I'm going to have to go around here to the other side and come at this from a different angle to try to get it loose. And at this point, I'm watching this going, I want someone to do that to me. Like just, my back doesn't work. So just a little here, a little there. 
The thing I love most about the repair shop is that they are not trying to make these heirlooms look like they were just purchased off Amazon and are brand new. They restore things so they function and work and look like they used to while retaining the weathered glory of their lifelong adventures. So when the trunk was finished, for example, fully restored, its leather and handles and little rubber shoes on the bottom were still distressed, and yet they still retained the wonderful stories this trunk had acquired along its many journeys. So you looked at it and you thought, that's a weathered trunk, but it's been restored. And the repair shop is a stunning example of how God, the restoration artist, patiently does his work in you, if you'll let him, in me, if I will let him, because we are his beloved and treasured heirlooms. He restores us so we become the way we were intended to be. So we radiate his goodness through our choices and decisions, through our thoughts, feelings, bodies, relationships, all the while retaining the weathered glory acquired through our various life journeys and stories. And this is our topic in this Radiant Life series we started a few weeks ago. The transformation of our inner being so we live the radiant life Jesus makes possible through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And today, we are going to start diving into the particular dimensions of the human self in need of restoration and transformation. And today, we are talking about embedded thoughts. The way our thoughts and the narratives, we might say, that are stuck in our heads about ourselves, about God, about other people, and the governing ideas, we might call them, that have a grip on us, the way in which these thoughts have become the reality from which we live, even though much of them are actually not real and not true. The thoughts embedded in us, in other words, move our wills to speak or act or react or respond in a certain way. The thoughts we have, our mind is the word the Bible sometimes uses, and what's in there is what compels our will, what the Bible calls our heart, to respond, to react, to say something, to do something. And a radiant life is experienced, or we grow in this radiant life, as the power of the Holy Spirit changes our embedded thoughts, loosens some of them. Oh, we'll come at it from this way. Prize some of those thoughts free and renovates and restores those thoughts so they are thoughts that are soaked and saturated in the goodness of God's kingdom. Now, for some of us, when it comes to our relationship with God, the whole thing seems so complicated and the journey toward growth seems so steep and so long, it's just easier to reduce the whole thing down to a certain set of beliefs about God and Jesus and the cross and forgiveness and what happens after death. And in the meantime, we just try our best to be moral 
and to be reasonably good. And because it seems so complicated, we just kind of settle for this. And yet this, what I just said, is a far cry from the vision of life today. Paul describes in so many places, such as in Colossians 3, when he says this, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Wow. Renewed. Sounds a lot like restored. Like the big luggage trunk. Or the butter churn in the repair shop with the creative restoration artist working on it. And one of the most important ways you and I cooperate with the Spirit of God to be renewed in the image of God is to invite Him into the world of our thoughts and renew and restore and transform those thoughts. Our thoughts, in terms of what are we talking about, our thoughts are the many ways we are conscious of things in life. So our memories, as an example, are part of our thoughts. The various perceptions and biases we have that constantly filter and sort and evaluate people and situations are part of our thoughts. Our beliefs are part of our thoughts. As are simple everyday things like, I'm right now thinking about lunch or whatever. When we walked from our car into this space today and along the way saw different people, maybe interacted with them or heard the music. If we have not been in this building before, we've never been to the Oak Hills before, perhaps when we got out of our car and walked up here, we saw the size of the building, we thought, oh man, this is a big place. Or we walked into this room and we saw the the arrangement of the chairs. Um, Or we saw how people are dressed. Or when I got up here, you looked and you looked at this combination of things. You go, what in the world is he wearing? Where did he get that? Why did he get that? Point is, whatever it is, it lights off a whole system of thought in our head. This is what we mean by our thoughts. And this goes on constantly, as you well know. But the thoughts we have are not just random eruptions in us and within us over which we have no say or control. They are not that. They don't just randomly pop out of nowhere. They emerge, rather, out of an embedded set of idea systems that were formed and deformed in the teachings and in the values and in the pressure points and in the expectations of our family of origin, for sure. And then life began to happen, and especially pain came into our life in some way. And these things further form the system of thoughts that currently govern us, the controlling narratives that drive our existence. And all along, you and I have cooperated in the process of becoming the kind of person who thinks the way we do today. We've gone along with it. We've done our part to be the kind of person who thinks exactly how we think today. In other words, we've chosen to think this way about God about others, about self, about life. And these thoughts and thought systems and overall governing ideas are what compel our choices and decisions. And this may be a shocker, 
But our thoughts represent both reality and unreality. That is, we have thoughts, we have narratives, we have governing ideas that are true and accurately reflect reality, and we have some that aren't at all true and don't at all reflect reality. So they are actually myths. And yet, even if they're a myth, it still governs us. So ideas that aren't even true can grip and hold us because even though they aren't true, they have become, over time, our reality. And we live out of that. Our untrue thoughts and governing ideas then sometimes compel action and choices and decisions and reactions that have tremendous and sometimes catastrophic implications. But ultimately, those actions originated in a thought or a governing idea that simply was not true. So our thoughts, our mind is crucial if we want to experience a radiant life. One wise Christian leader put it this way, the transformation of our thought life by taking on the mind of Christ, his ideas, images, information, and patterns of thinking opens the way to deliverance of every dimension of the human self from the oppressive powers of darkness. Pretty critical stuff. So, for a second, think about what you generally think about. What are your governing ideas? What's one of the stories stuck in your mind? I'll say a few words maybe to help jar it. Just a few words that probably will send an eruption of thoughts into your mind. Church. God, politics, sin. Here's one, family. You realize, in saying the word family, there's all these heirlooms in this room and watching online. And within the thought life of all sorts of different people, family evokes a certain set of images and ideas. And some go this way, and some go that way, and some go that way, and some go that way. So our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. So why don't you stand, stretch a bit, probably getting a little tired here, starting to really think about lunch. So Philippians 4 and verse 8, it's just one verse. It's the Apostle Paul speaking to us, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul says, But their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And in the verse I read, Paul is urging us to set our minds, not our brains, but our minds, set our minds on things that are good and right and true and beautiful. He's telling Christ's people to dwell on goodness and beauty and truth, to dwell on excellent and praiseworthy things. Obviously, Jesus is to be dwelt upon. 
the goodness of his kingdom is to be dwelt upon, but also the beauty of creation. Paul's doing a very daring thing here. He's grabbing from Greco-Roman culture of the times where there was art and there was poetry and there was good writing, and he's saying, dwell on those things if they're true and right and beautiful. Really good art, the beauty of creation, genuine love, the joy on a baby's face, the majesty that is every human being since every human being has been created in the image of God. Think about such things. Why? Because what we think about and dwell upon and mull over shapes and compels words, responses, actions, choices, and decisions. Think about it. The governing ideas and images and patterns of thinking we have about other people shapes how we relate to them and how we respond to them. I'll give you an example. For the past year, our nation has seen a disturbing rise in acts of racism committed against Asian Americans. The Bay Area, for those of you who have read about this, the Bay Area is one place where this is happening regularly. Why is racism against Asian Americans on the rise? I'm sure there's lots of answers, and I don't know probably very many of them. But the little bit that I've dug into this, uh, one of the reasons is because people connect the pandemic to China. And that idea, this came from China, which it did apparently, but that idea stirred in the minds of those who had trained themselves to be predisposed to racism. That is, it sat into the mind of those who had trained themselves to think in terms of this group is superior, that group is inferior. Therefore, if a group brought a virus to my country, then they deserve to be attacked and assaulted and in some cases killed. So racial acts flowed from this kind of thinking, what was in the minds of those who perpetuate these things. Wrong and destructive and sinful actions then emerge from wrong and sinful governing ideas. How we think about others. If you've ever had an upcoming conversation with someone whom you thought was mad at you or disappointed in you or, gonna, or they were going to tell you something you knew was going to be hard to hear, then you know the shaping power of thoughts and ideas. It doesn't matter if our thoughts about the upcoming conversation are accurate or are true. You know this. Our physical bodies, our posture, our emotions will be prepared on edge, tense, as we enter into this difficult conversation because our thoughts have cooked up a reality. It may be true. It may not be true. But this is the stuff, the thoughts, our mind, that Jesus wants to get into and renew and restore and transform. Our thoughts toward others. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, there is a marvelous example of the power of a governing idea about another person. And what happens when that governing idea is not rooted in truth? What happens when the dominion of darkness, we might say, governs our thoughts instead of the kingdom of Jesus? You don't have to look it up. It's 2 Samuel. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. This has to do with King Saul and this rising star, a guy named David. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet with King Saul. 
with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain, refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, he kept a close eye on David. David had some success. The people loved him and sang his praises. But King Saul thought, hey, they've credited him more than they're crediting me. What can he, what more can he get but my kingdom? And then the Bible says, from then on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And Saul feared emotion. Next week, Saul feared David. His thought, what more can he get but the kingdom, generated an emotion, fear. And get this, the remainder of Saul's life, we could say, was driven by this thought. So much so that he ran around the countryside trying to find David so he could kill him. Saul dwelled on this thought. He cultivated it. And it compelled him to go after David. Here's the thought. He's out to get me. She doesn't like me. They're going to take something from me. He's better than me. She probably doesn't want me around. The thoughts. Doesn't matter if these are actually true, because if they're embedded in us, then they become the reality out of which we act and react toward others. So how do we cooperate with the Spirit of God in the restoration of our thoughts about others? How are we made new in the attitude of our minds, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 and verse 23. So our thoughts about others align with God's kingdom. Well, I would say this. This whole thing starts, this move toward radiance in our thought life begins by paying attention to our thoughts about others. Noticing those thoughts. And slowing down long enough to kind of inspect those thoughts. This is doing the hard and rather detailed work of Stopping our thoughts before they ignite the chain reaction of words or actions or responses. So let's play a game. Imagine I'm Saul and David is ascending in popularity and I begin thinking just what the Bible says that he was thinking. And here I am. You know, someday he's going to come, this punk, and he's going to take the kingdom away from me. Wait a minute. What? What did I just think? Where did that idea come from? What, what am I doing here? Where, why am I going down that road that he's going to come and take this from me? Something is up in me, not in David. Why would I assume he wants to take this away from me? Something in me needs the Spirit's repair shop. See, it's learning how to recognize darkness and half-truths and lies that are embedded in a governing thought or idea system and catching them before they do their damage. Where is that coming from? Get back in the repair shop metaphor. It's recognizing, hey, wait a minute. This thought, this governing idea, this is not how God intended it to be. That's not soaked in the kingdom. This needs restoration. It needs some attention. Think about as it relates to our thoughts about ourselves. I wonder how much of Saul's fear of David and 
close eye on David was ultimately because Saul did not have a kingdom-centered identity himself. He didn't have a solid identity in God. His identity was wobbly. He didn't know who he was. So being the king is what gave him his identity. I'm the king of Israel. So that must mean something about who I am and how great I am. And so David, or Saul, got his identity out of this being the king, and he was afraid of losing the thing that gave him his identity, namely the kingdom. So he turned a myth, this guy's going to come and take this from me, into the reality from which he lived, and he acted accordingly. See, for some of us, the enemy is us. I have, unfortunately, a lot of experience with this, but the enemy is us. For some of us, the enemy is us. It's the committee in our mind. Our thoughts accuse us of not being good enough or not measuring up or not whatever. You fill in the blank. Henry Nouwen calls it self-rejection, and he says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Self-rejection. I'm sure it's many other things. But self-rejection is Mike's assertion that Mike knows me better than God knows me. And Mike's thoughts about Mike are more accurate than God's thoughts about Mike. And again, connecting these dots, how we think about others is so often rooted, goes back to how do we think about ourselves? A deficient self-image produces caution and fear and excessive neediness of others. So how do we cooperate with the Spirit in the restoration of our thoughts about self? How are we made new in the attitude of our minds so our thoughts about self align with God's kingdom? I became a Christ follower at the age of 19. That's 38 years ago. And I can say without any hesitation or pause, the most crucial part of the journey for me over the last 38 years and the greatest challenge has been learning to accept that I am God's beloved son. Finding my my identity in being Loved by God, period. And then living out of the abundant goodness and peace this identity brings. Colossians 2 and verse 10 has been a scripture that I have gone back to thousands of times. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Nothing lacking. No deficiencies. Because Jesus is in the restoration process and he's bringing you to that. I've always been tempted for these last 38 years to pursue excellence as a means of acquiring my identity. Excellence in sports, excellence in school, work, morality, excellence in being a dad, striving for excellence in these things is probably the better way to put it. Striving for excellence and being a pastor. I'm okay because I just delivered a decent sermon. Lie. I'm okay because I got good grades. Lie. I'm okay because I work hard in my job. Lie. I used to ride around in the car. This is about 20 years ago. And these thoughts would be all over my head. And I finally realized I can't do this just in my head. So some thought would come in my head. You know, you're not that. Lie. I would say it out loud. When I bring this into God's repair shop, the work of the Spirit in me for 38 years can be described as something like this. Mike, you're my beloved son, and I lived and I died and I rose again 
so you and I can be in relationship. And remember and don't ever forget, this is your primary identity and everything begins and ends right here. So we could say it this way, the way out of self-rejection is self-denial. Self-rejection says I'm not good enough and I deserve to be tossed aside. Self-denial says I can't do it on my own. Self-rejection is the, the heirloom luggage trunk that says, you know, I'm old, I'm decrepit, I don't work anymore, I belong on the junk pile. Self-denial is the same trunk that says, I can't be restored without some help. I need the restoration's artist's grace and forgiveness. I hope you've been able to soak a bit in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We talked about this at the beginning of Lent to be reading it and rereading it and rereading it. I hope you've been able to do that a little bit because there are truths in there that deal exactly with what we're talking about. They confront the lies that end up becoming part of our thoughts. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3. Since then you, Mike, have been raised with Christ. Set your heart and your mind on things above. For you died, Mike, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I go, huh? That kind of sounds like, A, God cares, and B, something has happened because I belong to him. Think for last second here. Think about your thoughts about God. Here's some words. Police officer. School principal who's not exactly nice. Explosively angry father. Absent father. Manipulative father. Silent Father, toothless grandpa in a rocking chair. Loud and powerful and dominating presence. Quiet and passive and detached presence. What is the governing idea? These are some of the ways people tend to think about God, the governing ideas people have about God. And it's obvious how we think about God is crucial and maybe the most crucial aspect of life and relationships. If our thoughts of God reflect what is true and right and good and beautiful, Philippians 4, 8, then there's this cascading effect into every other relationship and aspect and dimension of life. So again, we started off with how we think about others. We backed up and said that may come from where we, that may start with really how we think about self. Now we back up again and say how we think about self and how we think about others really originates in how we think about God. Peter in Matthew chapter 16 says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And a little while later, Jesus says, you know what, I'm headed to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be put to death. And Peter opens his big fat mouth and he says, never, we're never going to let that happen to you. And Jesus then looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only human concerns. What's going on there is this. This is the key, the idea, the thought of Messiah in Peter's mind, included, for sure, being a king, being a ruler, having power, all that was good, but it did not include suffering and dying. And all that needed to be reworked and restored. Psalm 34, 8 might be a marvelous verse to confront those images I mentioned a moment ago, if you have one of them. Again, Psalm 34, another passage we're incurring you encouraging you to read and reread as we go through Lent. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Colossians 1, speaking of who God is, the Son is the image 
of the invisible God. In him all things were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. You want to think rightly about God? Colossians 1, 15 and on is a pretty decent place to start. And you start to realize something here. You start to realize when our thoughts of God start to align with truth, there's only one fitting response. If God is a police officer, maybe we run. If God is a school principal, we probably try to avoid. If God is a... <clears throat> Toothless grandfather, we roll our eyes. If God is an explosively angry father, we try not to make him mad. If God is a passive and quiet father, we try to get his attention. And if that doesn't work, we just go our separate ways. But if God is what the Bible says he is, what Colossians says he is, what Psalm 34 says he is, taste and see the Lord is good. If that's the case, there's only one fitting response and you don't even have to try to do it because when the reality of who God is starts to become in your mind worship is the action that flows from thinking rightly about God and who he is it's quite literally the only response that makes any sense